0: The Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Steve, we're on cloud nine tonight because we're welcoming back a guest we admire so very much.
1: Uh, we are indeed, Russell. We're delighted to be speaking to Emma Turner once again. Last time we spoke to Emma on the podcast was two years ago when we talked about her brilliant book, Be More Toddler. This was a brilliant conversation about lessons in leadership. That's right. And
0: what a book that is. Now, since then, Emma has been prolific in her writing, whether that be producing or contributing towards more wonderful books or writing thoughtful and insightful blogs. More recently, we've seen the release of Emma's new book, Simplicitous, the Interconnected Primary Curriculum and Effective Subject Leadership. And I have to say it is astonishingly good. We'll say some more about that in just a moment. But Emma, a huge welcome back to our podcast.
2: Oh, it's an absolute delight to be back. Thank you so much for having me. And I have grown up since my toddler
1: days. (laughs) Two years. I
2: know. I know,
1: it's mental. But congratulations on *Simplicity*! It is a brilliant book. Can you start by giving listeners a brief overview of why you wrote this particular book?
2: I wrote this book because years and years ago, when I first started in headship, I wanted to develop subject leadership in my school. And I wrote a little handbook for my subject leaders in school And then that morphed into training for the staff, which morphed into training for across our group of schools, which then became sort of national, international training that I've been doing around it. And then it was Tom Sherrington who said, you need to write this. You need to put this into a book. So I did. I took my course and all my work that I've done over the last sort of probably about 15 years now around subject leadership and just put it into a book because I just felt like were getting a bit of a raw deal really in terms of the curriculum conversation especially around subject leadership that there wasn't although there was great stuff written about curriculum a lot of it tended to be from a secondary perspective Mm -hmm. and all that's that's hugely useful in terms of there is some transferability there's not necessarily direct congruence so I wanted to champion subject leadership curriculum design specifically from the primary angle and that's why I wrote it and it's so far it seems to be pretty well received by people they seem to find it quite useful uh, and helpful because there just hasn't been anything to my knowledge out there that kind of pulls the curriculum conversation the subject leadership conversation and the this is primary and I love it together.
0: Awesome. There's so much I'd love to ask you about simplicity, Emma, but I've had to rein myself in when writing these questions. So can we start with this idea of purpose? Now, in the book, you describe purpose as key to curriculum design. Why are those conversations about what's important to us as a school so important when designing a curriculum?
2: Well, primary is a bit unique. You know, we take children from the cusp of toddlerhood, all the way through to just when they're going to become an adolescent. We know it's a huge developmental phase for children. And it is different from dealing with teenagers, dealing with secondary or dealing with preschool. And we need to be really clear about what we want to achieve with our curriculum. We need to be really clear about what the purpose of primary education is, you know, what we want for our youngest sort of learners in the formal education system. Because unless we're clear about what we want to achieve, we can't craft the curriculum to serve that. And there's been so much conversation around knowledge and skill, and and we're really good at that. We're really good at sort of nailing down the things we want children to know and the things we want them to be able to do. But the broader aspects of primary education, especially, have kind of got lost in the mix in that conversation. And we really need to return to what's the purpose of primary education? What do we want to happen or to develop with those children From the age of four all the way through to the age of 11. And it's not just about learning knowledge and being able to do things. It's all of that kind of wider experiential stuff, the child development angles, the developing as a young person that primary schools need to develop and all those primary school rites of passage that everybody expects. And and it is different and it is unique. And unless we've absolutely nailed that down, we can't craft a curriculum to serve that. You know, all we're doing then is, is becoming these delivery automatons that, uh, you know, it's got this objective and this objective and this objective and we've got to do that. Well, actually, the curriculum needs to be bigger than the sum of its individual subject parts. It needs to be sort of greater than just 12 individual subjects. We, we need to go back to why these young people are in school full stop and what school can do for those young people whilst they're in our care. So I talk a lot about the global offer of the primary curriculum and and aspects of the fact that everything in primary is is the curriculum but unless we've had those bigger wider conversations then we're not all on the same page we're not all pulling in the same direction so school has to be clear about what it wants to to achieve really and then go back to your curriculum and design your curriculum in such a way that it facilitates that.
1: Amazing, thank you. Now, one thing we also know is that you're acutely aware of what a unique phase primary education is in a child's life. You kind of just touched it then. And you say in the book, we have to ensure that journeys for education begin the right way, informed by a deep understanding of their age, stage and development. Mm -hmm. Now, why is an understanding of a child's development so important when we are actually talking about the curriculum?
2: Because children are different at different ages and stages. And this, again, a common sense aspect of this has kind of got lost in the mix. You are four or five, you know, you are completely novice in everything. You are novice in everything from lining up, putting on your own coat, holding a pencil, phoneme, grapheme correspondence, you know, how to resolve a conflict with a, with a friend. You're completely novice in all of this. And that has to sit alongside all of the things that you're trying to learn to know, all of the things that you're trying to learn to do. And we need to be aware as primary practitioners of that you know you are a very different human being at 4 than you are at 8 that you are again at 11 and so we need to be aware of the demands that we're placing on the children cognitively socially emotionally physically and craft that curriculum around that to support the positive development in all of those areas and this is why primary is unique because we are developing not just the cognitive we are developing social the physical the emotional the spiritual and we need to be aware of that when we when we're designing the curriculum and this idea of the multi-novice status impacts on everything that we do so for example example i give in the book is about the sentence about the roman empire which you can find in any kind of non-fiction book about the roman empire about it being 2000 years ago and it being in italy and being um starting in rome but that's got so much other information in it that children are novice in. They might not know how big 2000 is. They don't know that Italy is a country and that Rome is a city. They don't know what an empire is. And that not to mention the fact they need to be able to read to be able to access it. There are so many interconnected aspects that children are novice in at any one time in primary that primary teachers as generalists are balancing all the time. By the time children get to secondary, most are fluent uh, or at least a, a decent degree of fluency in reading, a decent transcription speed, a relatively sound grasp of number, good general knowledge. When you're very little, you haven't got all that yet. So when we're trying to teach science, we're also juggling all of this into novice status. And so primary is unique. And, and I, I do think it needs championing that the... The subject content of our individual subjects isn't necessarily academically challenging for an adult, but it is hugely professionally demanding in terms of understanding how to balance and juggle all that multi novice status in terms of planning a curriculum that works. You can't just take what works with a 12 year old or a 16 year old and put it into a class with a six year old or a four year old or an eight year old. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the joy of primary. That's why I love it. I absolutely love primary because you are kind of the introductory kind of gatekeeper to so much new learning for children. You get to open so many doors for the first time and get them to go, wow, that's amazing. Look at that. It's brilliant. And you get to create these curriculum worlds, which is so beautiful. And, and you get to do it multiple times in multiple disciplines. And it's it's such a joy. be the person who introduces children to the to the wider world of learning which i guess in secondary, if you only teach one or maybe two subjects you don't get that glorious kind of overview of learning
0: it's also unlikely that you've ever had a five-year-old empty their bowels on the carpet do you know what i mean like i've been waiting to say that thinking emma's saying all this beautiful stuff about what it is to teach a five or a six but like Practically, these things happen in a younger primary class as well, don't they? Yeah,
2: and it's things like you've done your done like your beautiful crafted cold calling and your smuggling and it's like <laughs> I've got a new shoe, <laughs> William. <are you>? Thanks. <laughs> my dad's at home today, or I've got a new rabbit, I'm going to a party, you know. Or
0: even worse, the deputy head walks in and carnage is caused for the next 10
1: minutes. (laughs) You know,
0: this is life, isn't it? Oh, Yeah. yeah. But that pragmatism, Emma, is something we love about you. And you really do get what it's like to work in a busy primary school, with lots of events and other demands constantly on the go. And your book reflects that. Can you share some examples where this pragmatism shows up in the book and in terms of us needing to be just realistic, really about what's practical for the the very busy, stressed teacher.
2: Well, if I talk about lo- lo- I say it, let alone talk about it, the logistics <laughs> of primary classroom. This is one thing that people overlook a lot of the time. That actually, the primary classroom, often cramped, never enough storage, never enough sockets, you know, crammed in. Some poor soul always gets rammed in the back with a drawer because they have chairs right near it. One's always falling asleep near the radiator. <laughs> this classroom has to be art studio, you know, creative writing space, cookery room, science lab, maths classroom, history department. It has to be everything and just the logistics of enacting a primary curriculum in a primary classroom. And yes, there are some bigger primary schools with lots of wonderful facilities and amazing resources for PE or science or art or whatever. But most primary schools don't have that. They don't have these wonderful, sprawling buildings full of -of state-of-the-art equipment. Most uh, primary school classrooms are drafty, cold, cramped, with awful ventilation and never enough space. And so when we're thinking about the primary curriculum, it needs to be enacted in primary schools. So things about how much time you can realistically spend on each subject and how many subjects you can fit in in a day and there's a there's a section on timetabling which says it's a complete nonsense to think that you can do an hour of each subject every day because there's nobody to flip the classroom for you there's no turn it from drama studio to art studio back to the English thing and back to history and if you've done art in the afternoon and then you try to do anything else well you know full well someone's going to sit in paint or glue and it's just going to go home with some questionable splodges all over them. There's so much kind of, and this sounds really terrible, highfalutin conversations about curriculum that don't reflect the fact that you've got to do it in a primary classroom. And it's a bit like everybody's a brilliant parent until they have their own kids. Mm. Everybody's a brilliant primary teacher until you've actually taught in a primary classroom and thinks, this is madness. It does not work. So some of the pragmatism stuff in there talks about timetable. It talks about blocking. It talks about realistic expectations and about wriggle room. And I was talking on my ECT course this morning about the 80-20 rule, you know, only plan for 80% of a curriculum because you need 20% of that for revisiting and wriggle room. And uh, and if you do manage to get through it once and you're some kind of miracle worker, brilliant, use that 20% to add depth and breadth. But if you timetable every last second of the of your curriculum time which is finite anyway you're on a hiding to nowhere because you the, the workings of a primary school are such that you may have 38 curriculum hours per year to teach history but there's sports day and comic relief day and school photographer day and parents open morning and i don't know dress as a smurf day or whatever random
1: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um
2: but it, it, it's things around that that you you have to craft things to fit the primary classroom, the primary timetable, the ability to, to flip your room, the ability for children to actually flip between that as well. You know, it's very difficult for children to follow the thread of a day if you're constantly chopping and changing into in, individual subjects. So, yeah, pragmatism is a huge thing for me. And, and I would say to anybody who wants to comment on primary curriculum go and teach in a primary Mm -hmm. half a term, then come back and have a conversation about primary curriculum.
0: (laughs) Too right.
1: It will be a relief to some people listening, actually, the pragmatic approach and how that is what you've got to consider when you're looking at curriculum. Now, Emma, one of the other aspects, and it's a key aspect that we know is looked at in your book, is the interconnected curriculum. You touched on it earlier. Some people might say in primaries that we've already done this we do this we have lovely topics and we make loads of connections (laughs) but but what does the word interconnected mean to you
2: okay it was born out of a very heated out basically (laughs) around, around with Sam Strickland I don't know if you know Sam Strickland of education but I was talking about topic and project work and he was like nah it's woolly you need subject specialism and I said no no no, you don't I was trying to explain what we're doing he went well that's not topic work or uh, themed work he said that's where you've got it's all connected deliberate connections he said it's kind of like an interconnection so I can't accredit I can't credit myself with the phrase interconnected it was a very long time ago that we had the conversation about the interconnected curriculum, but I must credit him with the actual phrasing of it. But the approach is that some subjects in, in schools that we teach augment each other. Some are just better together. Um, and I think the analogy that I use in the book is about marigolds. If you plant a marigold mm. next to anything, it blooms and blossoms much better. So it's, it's finding those units of work that are better together than they are apart which is different from topic or theme, where you pick a theme and you wedge stuff into it to make it fit the theme. Uh, And that's a big difference between, oh, we do topic-based or we do theme-based and compared to an interconnected curriculum. An interconnected curriculum deliberately looks for those connections that augment each other, that if they weren't together, they would be worse. So one of the examples I give is when you teach Victorians um, in history, to do that alongside the teaching of microorganisms because if you're looking at sort of the movement from rural settlements to urban settlements and the impact that had on sanitation and outbreaks of cholera the work around microorganisms that you're doing in science actively augments the understanding of why the cholera outbreak happened and it also gives context to the science work that you're looking at and then that links in really neatly with work on vaccines and those two together work absolutely beautifully. Wouldn't work as well as if you put Greeks next to microorganisms because they have no natural affinity. But the difference between interconnection in topic and topic is that you don't always connect everything in an interconnected curriculum. You only connect those things that actively augment each other. And I call that complementary sequencing. So if it goes together well, if it's a happy little couple or a happy little trio or a little quad, you put them together. If not, they're they're standalone. So I fall between two stools, really, as in I'm not topic. I don't advocate the thematic or topic teaching. Neither do I advocate single subject teaching. What I advocate is a really thorough understanding of knowledge and skills progression in each individual subject discipline and then how they can be placed together to actively augment the understanding in each other. But they won't always fit in the same kind of set-ups. So it won't always be science and history. Sometimes it might be science and geography or history and art that go together. And that's the bit I talk about, flexible connectivity. So you, you look at your curriculum and you say, well, we're not always going to put these three subjects together. We're actually going to look for and how we can flex our curriculum to to actively put these augmented um, units together and recognising as well that if you do single subject teaching all the time, you are not building on what we know about how we learn. So if you look at anything about how we learn, it's all about connection making, it's all about developing rich, highly connected schema, the kind of Donald head neurons that fire together wire together. So the more times we can pull in the information to build a richer schema about one thing, the better. And that's what the interconnected curriculum is underpinned by as well. It's not just about, well, that sounds like a nice thing. We could do some activities together with it. Actually, this knowledge is interdependent on understanding from that other one, and it augments each other. So there's not just the augmentation aspect. There's also the aspect where there's the interreliance as well. So some units need to go together, because actually you can't do it unless you've understood the information from another unit. So there's a, a little chart work that I've got in the book about considerations for things to think of before you teach any unit of work. And there's considerations for vocabulary, maths, equipment that you might use, chronology, all of those sorts of things. So what needs to be taught first from across the curriculum, the program, in order to be able to aspect this. So I'm not advocating thematic or topic teaching as a an approach neither am I looking at individual subject teaching as an approach I'm saying there's the opportunity to build really rich connections for learning for understanding what's going on in the unit and to enhance the teaching of each individual unit so it's planning your curriculum in that interconnected way which is very different from topic and very different from individual subject teaching but I think that's Obviously, I think. It <laughs> <works>. <laughs> but that's where I think the magic happens. And that's where people that I've worked with that have done that have just said that the curriculum is absolutely flown as a result because it's based specifically on what works together, not what sounds nice together. Very different.
0: Yeah. Very different. And, you know, I think that was the way we were encouraged to think were we encouraged to think like that I don't know where that came from but certainly its legacy is still very much there on you know I see it on uh, Facebook groups and things where people still ask you know has anyone got a nice book link to light or something like that and it ends up being that very tenuous link rather than the the powerful I love that uh, metaphor of the the curriculum Uh, Marigold's very very useful (laughs) and and very useful however you you have decided to design your curriculum if you think about that idea of things that do work well together. And also you had me think about what Claire Silly would have described as those diagonal links over time. Yeah. Okay. You say in the book that what we know about most primary curriculums is that they're overstuffed. You were talking about this a bit earlier with the pragmatism. You say they're bursting at the seams with more than we can ever get through once, let alone with enough time for revisiting, review and refinement. This is so true and definitely if I was starting to design a curriculum again my biggest learning point I said this to Lekha Sharma when we had her on that you know I'm now uh, ruthlessly cutting back content tell us some more about this idea of creating space for revisiting review and refinement
2: it's all about pomegranates
0: <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> of course
2: the way I describe it is imagine you go and do your big shop the end of the week, and you come home and you've forgotten bread, milk and eggs, it's a disaster. You can't make a cup of tea, you can't have a slice of toast sandwich or anything. Come home from your big shop and you've forgotten pomegranates, feta cheese and face cream, it's not a disaster. <laughs> you know, you might have a bit of dry skin around your eyes, but that's about it. There are so many pomegranates in the primary curriculum, stuff that we just don't necessarily need to discuss about. That was nice if you have it, it's nice if you manage to secure it, but it's not a disaster. So the first thing about creating space in your curriculum is find your curriculum bread, milk and eggs. Absolute core things that if children don't grasp them, they can't move on. And you do this for every subject. You go through all of your subjects in the primary curriculum for each year group. And you say, right, what's bread, milk and eggs for science for year one, year two, year three, year four. And they should be the things where if they don't secure it, it is a complete disaster. Um, And then you focus all of your curriculum efforts on that because you know they're the limiting things that will will stop children progressing in that the other bits the pomegranates and face cream lovely if you can manage to secure it and and obviously you cover it but you don't break your neck trying to secure those because actually you've got bigger fish to fry and the examples that i give in the book and that i give in all my training as um say for example in year six properties of an isosceles trapezium lovely <laughs> Loads of talk about angle, shape, symmetry, properties of quadrilaterals, absolutely delight to talk about. Not got the same inter and interest subject kind of importance as understanding the four operations or being able to calculate efficiently and effectively. That's your bread, milk, and eggs. The trapezium is your pomegranate. Another classic one in year two. <laughs> I have nothing against poetry of different forms. Um, <laughs> but- <laughs> So we are teaching, you know, so there's a three-week unit on haikus in year two, and they can't write in a full sentence yet. And you what are you doing? This is madness. I'm not saying don't teach haikus or don't teach trapeziums, but just be mindful of their curriculum currency. They don't carry a lot of weight. They're not bread, milk, and eggs. So to create space in your curriculum is, is, first of all, thinking not all objectives are created equal. So planning out as a subject lead, as a curriculum coordinator, whatever your role is, what that bread, milk and eggs is for every single subject and then sharing that with staff so they understand it and they've got that freedom then to create space to go back over that, to do the retrieval, to do the interleaving, to do the space practice, all of that business. I mean the, the breadth and depth can come with the wider information but the other example I give is for example when you're doing Rome you're doing uh, romans usually in year three so the core knowledge for that unit might be understanding what's meant by invasion understanding what's meant by settlements understanding the idea of legacy what an empire is and roughly when the roman empire was if they don't know that when they come to do greeks it's going to be really hard or when they come to do vikings it's going to be really hard what they don't necessarily need to know is what were the names of the formations of the roman army marched in or which animals gladiators fought in the Colosseum? that's lovely and, and stuff you might cover but you're not going to break your neck to try and secure it so create space by recognizing that most of the curriculum in primary is pomegranates
0: sorry steve can i just ask a little supplementary question to that mm, right of course. i'm just going to hit him about with a, a metaphor right frozen peas okay <laughs> we're not at pomegranates level all right but we're also not at the essentials frozen peas somewhere in the middle mm. with covid yeah. we're all seeing aren't we and I've, in my school kind of particularly year one to four right most affected in terms of the gaps yeah the frozen peas of the curriculum these things that aren't quite icing on the cake and pomegranates and other lovely tasty metaphors <laughs> but they're they're, they're they're a bit more important than that but they're not yeah. quite my bread and milk do you think it's reasonable in current times for some of the frozen peas to also get cut in order to make room you gave the example that great example about the haikus unit you know where actually i need these kids to be able to write a sentence by the end of this year and that's really important yeah. is it are you finding in your schools that you 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 support and work with that you are having to cut back even more of some content in yeah
2: what well, what i ask them to do is to triage their curriculum hmm. and to look for kind of the three levels it's interesting they brought like the frozen peas analogy in in the, There's some things like when you triage anybody in an ED department, if you don't do this now, it's an absolute disaster. Then there's things which if you don't secure these, it could potentially in the future be a bit of a disaster. And then there's the other things like the ingrown toenail. Yeah, it's a bit painful, but we can just leave it for a little while. But it's looking at your curriculum and going through it and saying, right, we've only got a finite amount of time. We've got massive amounts of gaps where how do we triage this which are our most important bits and if we manage to get through those what's the next bit so it's, it's knowing that hierarchy it's not it's not just bread or pomegranate there is this gray area and we do need to triage that and it, especially now and say okay well let's just make sure we kind of got the red band what's in mm-hmm. the band that we can move on to and what's the green band that's lovely if we can get there but don't worry too much yeah, there are, there are some of the things, but when you actually strip the primary curriculum back to its nuts and bolts, it's not actually an awful lot of red stuff. But what the red stuff is, is big. So for example, it might be know your number of facts um, and all the number of uh, bonds and complements to 10, which sounds little, but is actually massive. <laughs> so it's, it's going back, sitting with your curriculum teams and saying, right, we can't do everything. What shall we do? And if we manage to get through that, what will we do next?
1: great hey russ i did love your frozen peas one then but i do think pomegranates could be my favorite analogy on the curriculum ever ever (laughs) Uh, thank you (laughs) Uh, now there's also a great bit in your book about defining excellence Mm -hmm. we've been thinking a lot about this lately in particular we enjoyed sonia thompson's new book on the same thing Mm -hmm. Uh, emma can you tell us more about what excellence means to you and why leaders should have clarity about what it looks like
2: yeah i think that's why you go back to the original question about Purpose, you know, uh, we we talk a lot about excellence in terms of outcomes in people's books and what can be seen and what can be measured and what can be put into a spreadsheet, and we can all go, "Oh, that's an excellent set of data. That's lovely." But there's something bigger about excellence in primary practice as well. And I talk a lot about the the curriculum dream. You know, what would it look like if you went into people's classrooms? If you went out on the field? If you looked at the walls? If you had a chat with children know, what would parents say about what you your provision in that subject at your school so I think we get wrapped up in excellence in terms of we can only see excellence in a book and that's I talk about the ruled faint curriculum you know we only value what can be put in a ruled faint book mm-hmm. um but actually excellence you measure your excellence against what you were trying to achieve in the first place so it's going back to that purpose of primary education and then that I call it the, the best. A best kept curriculum where there's that little acronym about you know behaviours and attitudes and skills and technology and sustainability. So it's going back and, and looking at are you achieving excellence in all aspects of primary education, not just the skills and knowledge, not just the things that can be looked at in a work scrutiny or a book scrutiny? You know, what behaviours are the children demonstrating? I don't mean not poking each other or kicking in the line, I mean you know what sort of behaviors are are they developing when they work in groups, when they work independently, when they work as part of a larger team? Now, what attitudes are being developed in your school towards subjects, towards the world, towards their communities? What are the interactions like between all staff and children? You know, all of those sorts of things make up that picture of excellence, which isn't necessarily always talked about when we talk about measuring the curriculum. But actually, the measure of a great curriculum is your end of phase child. You know, what do you want for them when they leave you? And then you measure your curriculum success against your end-of-phase child. How well did we manage to achieve that? So, yes, it can be about excellence in measurable outcomes, but I think there's something broader than that that we need to to keep in mind, as in what is excellence in primary and what does it look like? Not just these kids can write an absolutely stellar essay in history. <laughs> it's actually... Are they, are they decent human beings? And there's a section in there about how you measure excellence. So I talk about alignment and I talk about parity and I talk about visiting other schools because in a field of one, you're, own, you're simultaneously best and worst. So in order to get a picture of how excellent you are or your school is, is using the system to help define what excellence looks like and looking for examples of excellence and best practice in settings similar to and different from your own to help build that picture of what excellence looks like. Because it's really easy to get caught up in your own definition of what it is. And it's only when you look out the window or go and visit other schools that you get that more rounded picture.
0: When I was training, I remember one of my placement schools, the teacher next door to me in year six had been... who like right near the end of her career and you know those amazing teachers that have just nailed it they just they just know how to get progress and those high standards yeah and I really admired her for that and when I went to my first school which was actually a special measure school it slightly warps your sense of what good enough is because you get used to, Mm -hmm. bless these children who hadn't had those high enough standards for many years and had such a low bar. And I asked my head if I could just go back and visit her one week and my head let me. And I remember going into her class and just looking at this work her children who are from the same kinds of backgrounds as my kids were producing and how beautiful their books were with no doodles on the front or anything and just saying, Mm -hmm. how do you do this? And she just sort of held one of their books in her hand like it was this kind of... (laughs) precious diamond uh-huh. and she just said i teach them that this is precious yes yeah and she just it was something about the way she said that that made me think they are precious (laughs) she's right i need to i need to make children feel like that and and she said i I talk about that from the very first day they start with me Mm -hmm. in september and we treat them so carefully we never throw them etc and there was something about her standards that just wow just blew my mind
2: and it's um it's something i talk about as well it's a phrase that i came up with a little while ago it always makes me smile which is about making the things that you do in your classroom for your children educationally and academically seductive you want the children to fall in love with what you're doing, and that mm. itself produces excellence because they are so invested in, in what they're doing. And I'm not about becoming a children's entertainer, I mean, and if you read the book, you'll see I've got very strong views on biscuits, stone <laughs> yeah, <I've
1: seen> <laughs>
2: and the like. But it's making your learning in your classroom academically seductive and so academically irresistible that children want to perform well, they want to they want to be excellent for you. And it's, and that's why I talk about that global offer because that can't happen in isolation. That can't happen in just one classroom necessarily. That's the culture that you create in your school. That's every assembly, every interaction, it's every display, celebration display. It's every certificate that goes home. It's every, it's every single interaction you have with your children that sends that consistent message about, we really value great work, great attitudes, great learning here. And your best, only your best is, is good enough, is, is excellent. So it's creating that as well and making the learning in your classroom by creating that really interesting, rich curriculum, making it something that children want to fall in love with. When, when they come in, they can't wait to come in because you've opened all of these doors. And that's a great curriculum in itself will create excellence but only through brilliant teaching and learning and one of the things that I mentioned in the book as well is about how teaching and learning conversations cannot be divorced from curriculum conversations and especially in primary that the thought of somebody writing the teaching and learning policy and then another person writing the curriculum policy it's absolute madness to me It's, it's, it's a bit like you know that thing where you stand behind somebody and you put your arms through
1: <laughs> you've got the
2: different somebody else's it just doesn't work in, syn- in sync at all so yeah it's um it's making sure to get excellent outcomes that your curriculum aligns with your teaching and learning approach as well and your, or your agreed teaching and learning approaches in school
0: Yeah, wonderful. Now, there's so much more I'd love to ask about the first part of the book, Emma, but I'm going to have to move on to the fantastic section on subject leadership now. (laughs) This part of the book is really comprehensive and very, very helpful. I love the diagram you share that describes that kind of sweet spot of effective subject leadership. And this diagram has kind of four circles where you outline some uh, different aspects that are really important. And you describe knowing, supporting picture building and then the last one is changing and improving can you tell us a bit more about those kind of four categories
2: that's the basic leadership then that I sort of came up with and it's not just for subject leadership it's for any kind of leadership so first of all you need to know stuff you need to know about your subject you need to know about subject associations the progression map what's in the curriculum you need to know what standards are like in your school you need to what standards in the school down the road are like you you need to know about your subject and then the bottom one that says picture building, that's my code for monitoring and evaluation. But this isn't just about being smart about the semantics of it. I genuinely have an aversion to the phrase monitoring and evaluation, especially in a primary school where you're often a very kind of collegiate, familial group. I don't want to, as a subject leader, monitor my mate who works in the class next. Mm-hmm. It's really uncomfortable. What I do want to do though, is to work professionally to raise standards for children and so in order to do that I need to build a picture of what's going on so I don't need to go and monitor all my colleagues I need to build a picture of what practice looks like in my school who would benefit from support who is an absolute stellar whiz at teaching this who has practice they could share you know what are outcomes like for pupils in each class is there parity you know Is is it age uh, appropriate in terms of the pitch and expectations? So I need to build a picture. So I need to know about my subject. I need to then build a picture. Are we getting through the curriculum? Is the curriculum working? All of that picture building stuff. And then once you've done that, then you can support people. You can't support people in that circle unless you know about your subject, unless you've built a really good picture. And then what you're trying to support people to do is to change and improve. And you can't make a change or an improvement unless you've got an accurate, accurate picture of what you're doing, unless you're supporting people, unless you know about your subject. And that's why it's that sweet spot in the middle. Far too often subject leaders think they just, oh, well, I'm a subject leader, therefore do some evaluation. But they don't necessarily understand why. And actually, it's to build that picture to support, change, develop practice in school. It's not just to create a folder because... Nobody ever led anything on the inside of a lever arch (laughs)
0: file. You
2: don't lead effectively by going, "Oh, I've got four lever arch files. I only have three last year. I must be a better leader."
0: (laughs) But for some reason, they give some people such confidence those lever arch (laughs) files, don't they?
2: (laughs) Because you hide behind them in a deep dive. (laughs) If you have enough, you don't have to look at the inspection.
0: Like like a shield, yeah.
2: Yes, the force field of the lever (laughs) arch.
0: Uh, Look, Emma, I could talk to you for days about Simplicitus and I'm sharing you in praise because I really do think it's a triumph. I think you've done a cracking job with that book. And anyone who is going to get their hands on it will be very grateful because it does combine the kind of uh, philosophies and thinking and rationale stuff with the pragmatism in a way that I've not seen in any primary curriculum kind of book yet so yeah congratulations it's awesome thank you so anything else exciting on the horizon that always is with you and i'm always i <laughs> want to always say no, no. what are you up to now
2: uh well we've just had out so i've been working with oliver caviglioli and david goodwin so we've just produced the extended mind in action which is based on the uh research of annie murphy paul who wrote the the extended mind so we've just done an in action book and i'm rolling out a pilot regionally for some training for the extended mind in action that starts later this week so i'm doing that i've got a few keynotes and bits and bobs i'm doing i'm doing loads of training with schools up and down the country who've contacted me and said can you run us a simplist course and my answer is always yes of course (laughs) (laughs) feel free to get in touch if you want some simplist training so lots of bits and bobs with that. I'm still doing all my work in the Trust, still working with ECF. So yeah, I'm still, oh, I'm still the um, DFE Flexible Working Ambassador School for East Midlands and Humber. So lots of fingers in lots of pies. I'm practically some kind of octopus at the moment.
0: Amazing.
1: <laughs> Amazing. I know
0: a lot of people ask themselves, what does Emma Turner eat for breakfast in the morning? It's like,
1: Coke. Coke. there we go
0: guys it's a scoop although i don't think it's a scoop i think you're very open about that secret i'm sure i've heard that one before emma it's always yeah. a delight to talk to you thanks so much for giving us some of your time
1: this evening oh
2: thank you so much it's been an absolute joy thank you a pleasure the dynamic deputies